Ron, my man, thanks for joining us. Alex, it's a pleasure. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I'm so glad we finally got you on the show. Uh, I know I had to be strategic and catch you in between being super busy with work. And uh, so I'm glad we got the opportunity to get you in. Before we go any further, do me a favor and just introduce yourself to listeners who may be unfamiliar with who you are. Uh, All right. I'm Ron Garber. I'm a Latin ballroom dancer. Currently, I live in Sarasota, Florida, and I've been dancing for 20 plus years. Hi there. Coach Alex here from A-Team Fitness. Thanks for listening as I share incredible transformation stories directly from the source themselves, the individuals doing the work and seeing the results. We'll take a behind-the-curtain peek at the mental and physical changes that make for amazing transformations. I'm glad you're here. And after the episode, I hope you feel empowered to begin making some transformative changes of your own. Let's dive in. Tell us how old you are. I just turned 29 last week. 29. So you've been dancing for 20 years since you were nine years old. Yeah, exactly. I guess I should be celebrating my uh, 20 year anniversary. That's a long time. Like most people, by the time they're, we'll just say 30 years old, have done nothing except for eat and breathe for 20 straight years. Let alone something is like dance, something, you know, a singular focused activity for that long, which is impressive. And I guess it's no surprise why you are as good as you are at it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always been a passion of mine. And it's something that I, you know, I've been doing since I was a kid and I was always inspired to do it. So it's been part of my life. And I can't remember a time when I wasn't dancing. That's a good point. Well, so nine years old, walk us through the, the origin story of Ron when it comes to your dancing. Nine years old, how'd you get into dance? Of all the activities nine-year-olds can get into. Yeah, well, at nine, I was actually, I was a new kid in town. You know, I didn't speak much English because my family just moved here from Israel. And I just remember it being really tough at home because my family came here in 2000, right? And I had a younger brother, younger sister. I remember my mom like having to take her like one-year-old and three-year-old and I was like helping her out with that. And like, we're all on the plane together. And it was, that that was a challenge itself. But then when we got here, it was shortly before 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, um, my mom lost her job. So I remember this like, life that my parents had planned in America was like very quickly going wrong and I think it was at that moment that they realized like okay we need to get the kids occupied with something and um, I was like the super energetic kid and I was always running around and they I don't know how my mom found this dance class but she just stuck me in it and the first day I came in like all the kids were super friendly I was like all right this is my spot like I want to hang out here and um that was like kind of like my safe space going there after school. Yeah. So did your mom ever say why she took you to dance? 
I don't know actually why she picked that over sports. A lot of kids were doing sports at the time. Um, but I do remember like we spoke Russian at home and at the dance studio, there was a lot of other kids who spoke Russian. So it was very easy for me to fit in because at the time like I had like close to no English. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? That there was that familiarity for her there with other people that spoke Russian where there was kind of maybe more of that familiar feel like it was, as you said, a safe space. Yeah. To go. Especially, especially during that time period, I have to imagine 9-11 where it could be said that it was hard to be anything different. Different than what? So like 9-11 happens, there's now this, this very intense emotional event. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. There's a lot of feelings of threat, a lot of feelings of threat, like what's happening right now. And when people are afraid, anything unfamiliar only heightens those emotions, right? So somebody who doesn't speak a lot of English, is you know family is relatively new to the country i could see why for your parents why that sort of familiarity when it was probably easier for them to be seen as very different than they already knew that they were yeah yeah and i i mean i was a kid right so i was probably shielded from that but i i know they had a hard time you know you know first of all like fitting in at work and learning how to get by and all this also financial pressure with my mom not having her job. I think it was just uh, kind of tough in the family, but you know, they, they turned it around and they've been like a big inspiration for me because knowing, you know, that you can have hard times and then you work your way out of it. That was always something that I looked up to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And clearly it worked out because you fell in love with dance. Would you say almost immediately? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know. It was, it was an after-school activity for many years before it became something serious or more serious. So were you naturally good at it when you first started? Oh, no, no. I was, uh, I was probably one of the least talented kids in the studio. So there, there was there was a few guys dancing circles around me when I started, you know, I was kind of like the new kid in the class. But I, I did feel like I had a knack for it because I was able to, um, I think I was good at remembering information. So I would learn something in one class and then by the next class I had it down. Like I always, you know, knew my stuff. Yeah, okay. Well, so for somebody who is new to an activity, has never done it before, I'm a sh maybe you were nervous, maybe you weren't, but nevertheless, there were other kids in class, as you said, dancing circles around you, clearly better, clearly more skilled. As a nine-year-old, how do you have the, how do you stay excited to keep going back? Well, this is the big thing with ballroom dancing. The moment I started doing dance competitions, that's when I really got excited about it because 
you know, suddenly all these kids who were, you know, dancing better than me, I got to challenge them and go on the competition and, you know, try to beat them. And even if it didn't happen, like I had this feeling that I was, you know, you know, working towards something. Okay. And so how long did it take you to start competing? I think within a year I was already dancing. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We did some like little competitions that were local in the studio. And I think um, it was maybe like two, three years after that, we started traveling to, you know, bigger events and challenging people from other states and other cities. You know, I find it impressive that you, having started this activity so young, stuck with it all the way up until now. Because I think of myself as nine years old, and I did a lot of activities, but I never stuck with any activity. <laughs> like, I, everything was cool the first couple of times, and then it starts to get a little less cool, and I would just stop. And so do you think that your... I guess before I ask you that, let me ask you this. What drove you? Was it just the love of the activity? Was it being able to see yourself get better? Was it competing and wanting to continually outdo everyone? Like what kept you interested in it for so long as a kid when, when you, your interests are usually? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause when you were that young, I feel every year something changes like, about the things that you want, the things that excite you. Um, and dancing always stayed constant because I feel like whatever stage of my you know, childhood I was at, dancing had something to offer. So, uh, you know, when I started, it was like maybe just that initial instinct of competition and, you know, potentially being good at something that was exciting. And then, of course, I got a little bit older and, you know, now I like girls and dancing, you know, there was always plenty of girls there. You know, and you can uh, impress them with your dance moves and all this stuff. It, I think that was kind of a driver as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I feel like I talked about that with maybe Sebastian in one of the previous episodes was very similar, kind of the confidence you get from being able to do that and being able to, to do that with a woman when you're interested in women and especially as a teenager when that's like all you're thinking about. Uh, so it totally makes sense. And then what has driven you? So at first it was something new, something exciting, something unfamiliar, seeing yourself get better, the initial excitement of competition. And then it was, dare I say, hormones that kept you interested in, in continuing to dance. And then you become an adult. And what has continued to drive you to push yourself? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll take it back. It wasn't just the hormones keeping me going for all those years, right? <laughs> Even though that was, a, that was a nice part of it that, you know, I got to go to the studio and, you know, interact with other kids and people my age. Um, but the big turning point, that was when I was probably around 15, 15 years old. And uh, we just had a new teacher move into the studio. So he came from Montreal. And this guy, he was he was at the time doing what I'm doing now. He was a competitive amateur Latin dancer. So on the weekends, he would go to New York. Oh, and we're in Boston, by the way. So this guy would live in Boston, go to New York and take lessons with the top teachers. And then he'd come back and teach us the information during the week. And um, very quickly, you know, I started getting really good at it. And at that time, 
I think I was not even dancing in the championship category when I started working with this guy. And within two years of putting in the work and consistently, you know, training and also, you know, getting a good partner, I was able to make the final in the U.S. in, in the youth category. And then the year after, we even won it. So that was like, that was a big one for me when I decided, okay, I can, I want to do this for the rest of my life. That's really impressive. I mean, having reached such a top level of competition, which it makes sense why it inspired you to keep going. Yeah, it had a lot to do with, you know, having a good teacher and somebody to guide me. Yeah. You mentioned when you were explaining this teacher that he does what you do now, which is amateur competitor, teaches dance. Would you say that that instructor was kind of the first or even a dance role model that you've, that you had? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, like during my childhood, I was always very like uh, influenced by things. So I would go to, you know, visit my aunt's boyfriend and then come back and now I'm like into heavy metal music and I have posters on my wall. So when, uh, when my trainer JP showed up, it's like, I started dancing like him. I started dressing like him, you know, I took a lot from this guy. And even to the extent that at some point, I think people called me like mini JP. I don't know if that was a good thing or not, but um, I kind of was able to like soak that in and I found something that was like, that I liked. And I would always take that, try to be a little bit more like that. Yeah. Does that impact how you, as a, as a dance instructor, when you're with students, does that impact, does that experience impact how you teach others? Oh, 100%. I mean, right now I, I also have students and, you know, I teach kids like me at that age, you know, 15, 16. And I always have to think like, if, if I'm going to do something in front of them, they might take that as an example. And I want to set a good example for them. I want them to make good choices. I, I feel like it's, it's, it's that kind of, um, unwritten aspect anytime you're in a leadership position over children and young adults is not only the actual subject matter that you may be teaching and this is true of teachers in schools as well not only the subject matter that you're teaching them but also the example that you're setting and the all the outside of the subject material stuff that you're teaching them right like how to manage your emotions and how to be a good human being and how to like all those important life skills that they're unwritten. So if you're not aware that that's part of what you're doing, we've all had teachers that drop the ball on that part of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody has their faults. True. True. Um, Nevertheless, so, you know, the, the thing that's probably even more interesting to add an extra layer to this story, obviously, you've been dancing for 20 years now, you've been competing for most of that time, you have students of your own, and amidst all of this, 
you still have a full-time demanding job. Yep. I work, uh, I work as a tax professional for a mid-sized accounting firm in New York. And I've been doing that uh, since college. So almost eight years now. And the thing that I probably love most about that is I feel like you are a prime example of breaking stereotypes. And here's what I mean by that. Tax professionals, every tax professional that I've known has been very boring as an individual. <laughs> and you are quite the opposite of that, my friend. No, thank you. I mean, that is a stereotype. I know plenty of very interesting tax professionals. But it's almost like you are, like, I feel like in a different area, yet same sort of concept. I feel like you're, you're kind of moonlighting as this dancer in a, and I don't mean obviously that you're only doing that night but like Batman-esque like during the day you're this you know shirt and tie tax professional although I, I don't I know you don't frequently wear a shirt and tie but nevertheless kind of <laughs> I have my occasions straight shoot tax professional and then outside of that it's like kind of this very vibrant exciting competing internationally in dance yeah uh, you have to look at it differently because you know we all have a job you know in in our capitalist society everybody has to work to make a living and you know if you want to be able to afford dance lessons and dance competitions you got to work for it and dancers who don't do accounting they're also working their butts off you know and a lot of them are teachers like claudia um, and what I've learned also, like being in this, um, so to say, corporate job where, you know, you, you have a nine to five where you have certain hours that you're required to be in the office, is that everybody there is also a passionate person. You know, some people are passionate about taxes. I mean, that's great. I also, you know, I'm interested in it as well. But um, at the end of the day, we all go home and we have what our life is really about that's more than just the job and you know for some people it's their families you know they're raising kids at home other people you know they want to travel and for me it's always been the dancing and it's those things that we're passionate about outside of work that make us interesting people and want to you know have something to contribute to our society other than the service we provide to our clients I'm really, really glad that you said that because I think it's easy for people, especially like today and age with social media and kind of this hustle culture and, you know, influencers and whatever. I think it's easier for people if they are going to pursue a passion, if they feel like they have to do something else because they can't make money at their passion, whatever that may be, or they need to be able to afford their passion. It's easy for people to feel like they're failing if they, if they can't make their passion their full-time thing. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so I love kind of everything that you just said about kind of explaining that. And I've always thought there's, there's really two routes you can take, right? There's, you can 
find a passion and find a way to make it your living out of it, right? So you make your living doing something you're passionate about, or you find something that gives you the financial means and the time to be able to, outside of that, pursue something you're passionate about, right? And not enough of the second case really gets highlighted as being a great option, right? And so in your case, you found a job that you enjoy, which is, you know, being a tax professional and it gives you the means to do all of the dancing that you want to do. Yeah. You know, I think there's a saying goes something like, if you, you know, do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, I, I hear that one thrown around a lot. Um, but I feel like even the dancers who are at the top of their game, you know, they're successful and they make all their money just by the means of dancing. I mean, these guys are also working, you know, no, nobody's really just, uh, you know, living this luxurious lifestyle of, uh, I'm extremely good at my craft, so I, I don't have to work, you know, it's just the type of work is different. And, and the one thing too about, we talked about either find something you're passionate about and be able to make a living at it or have a job that gives you the means to pursue your passions. And the interesting thing about that second role for you, particularly, I want to highlight during the pandemic, where, you know, for most dancers, I wager the way that they make their livelihood in dance is through teaching. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, obviously teaching dance, largely an in-person activity. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of dance studios suffered. And I, I assume it's the same as the way gyms suffered, where, you know, gyms closed down, they weren't able to operate because we weren't allowed to be with groups of people like that. And the interesting thing for you, because I remember this is around the time when you and I first met, is the advantage that you had as you were still able to pursue within the means that you had during that time, you were still able to pursue your dance when I would wager a lot of other dancers were struggling because they couldn't make their living. Yeah. So I guess we're, we're going to fast forward now, right? Now I'm living in New York and, you know, I have my accounting job, I'm dancing, I'm training with, you know, the top teachers in New York and, um, Everything seems to be going right. And then COVID hits and suddenly everybody's shut down. All these dance studios have to close, not because they want to, but because the city said, you cannot run a dance studio right now. We're in a, in a pandemic. And uh, suddenly we're all holed up in our apartments. All the dancers you know, are dispersed back to their uh, home cities. And I think that was... At that moment, I realized what a beneficial thing it was to have this job outside of the dance industry because uh, a lot of people were struggling at the time, not able to teach their lessons, you know, but I was able to continue working remotely, doing my you know, accounting job from my laptop at home. Which is, I'm sure it was a huge saving grace. Yeah. I, I think I was so uh, grateful to have this job and the skill that I've developed because, I mean, a, a lot of other dancers were struggling. And to be honest, everybody was very concerned about it. We didn't know what was going to happen to the dance industry. And 
you know, I was dating Claudia. We were living together at the time and she's a dance teacher. Suddenly she was out of work. And I think it was a very scary time for all of us. Absolutely. Which shout out to Claudia, your dance partner, previous episode she's been in. Definitely check that out. Um, you know, it's as you explain that there's a concept that I'm pretty sure you and I have talked about. I talk about a lot with my clients and it's this idea of diversifying one's self-worth. And kind of here's what I mean by that. The dancers during the pandemic who were fully embedded in dance, competing, teaching their entire life, wake up to go into bed was entirely centered around dance. When the pandemic hit, and now because of the local ordinances and because of all of the fears that were out there, their ability to participate in that was taken away from them. And I would wager that individuals in that position struggled a little bit more, not only financially, but also mentally, because now their entire identity being wrapped up in dancing was now taken away from them. And their entire kind of sense of self was in jeopardy. And I talk about this a lot with people who are, going through the fitness journey and they're trying to change different aspects of their life. Cause oftentimes to translate this into fitness terms, oftentimes people get so wrapped up in what the number on the scale means for them and what type of person it makes them that now the scale almost becomes the sort of deity that determines how they're going to feel on any particular day. Right. If it's a number they like to see, they feel great the rest of the day. If it's a number they don't want to see, they feel terrible the rest of the day. And this idea of diversification of self-worth is we have things that we use to identify who we are as people. And if we put all of our eggs in one basket, just like a financial investment, if that goes away, we're kind of screwed. But if we can diversify those investments, we put them a little bit in a bunch of different baskets. If one of them goes away, it's not the end of the world. It may you know, not be the greatest feeling, but we have all of these other things to put our time and our energy and our and our sense of being into. And so I feel like for you, having this other profession that gives you another avenue to excel and to use your skills and to challenge yourself mentally and to really put your time and energy into, and correct me if I'm wrong, when the dancer part of your identity was temporarily taken away or put in jeopardy, it allowed you to put your energy into something still. Yeah. I have to agree with that to an extent, you know, to be honest, like when, when COVID just happened and you suddenly took the dancing away, we were in the middle of tax season. So I think it was February, COVID is announced by March, everybody shut down and our busiest months are actually mid-February to the middle of April. So you can imagine like in, in our, in my job, you know, we were freaking out the most, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's people who can't work now. And then on the other hand, we're working a lot. Yeah. And I kind of had to bog down and then rather than being in an office, what I was used to, I was like now at home and just working like, I don't know, crazy hours. We always end up working like 60, 70 hours a week when it's crunch time. And it was also an uncertainty there that we didn't know, like, what was, was the tax deadline going to get extended and what's happening with our clients, you know, how is COVID affecting them? Um, so in a way for me, it was good that I was able to put my, you know, energy into that. And I wasn't so preoccupied with what's going on in the world. 
whereas other people you know like i could see them being worried because you have all this time to yourself now and you're just like playing out these scenarios in your head about you know what could happen you know what is happening that can be i think can put a lot of like uh, mental stress yeah and i guess to jump back to this like uh, identity or like like you said you know in the morning when you're just waiting for that one thing to happen to decide if your day is going to be good or bad. Um, all of that gets heightened when uh, we're under stress, whether, you know, there's a pandemic going on or even just like you have a deadline of work or a dance competition coming up. I think that we always get much more, you know, introverted when something like that happens, when we have something big approaching. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, just our sense of self becomes much more heightened when we're under um, a stressful situation or we have some big event going on in our life. And for me, it's always uh, being more introverted. I'm sure it's different for different people. But I, I definitely, you know, start to look inside more and like question my choices, think much more when when I'm I don't know when something stressful is happening. You know, this, this conversation about stress is interesting. I was thinking about this recently and I was thinking about kind of my own response to stress and I know I'm not alone, but I know it's also unusual, which is for me personally, when there's a super stressful event happening, I, it's almost like my emotions get suppressed. I get, and I've kind of always been this way. It's not like something I've learned or anything. It's, I've noticed I've always been this way. I get very rational. I get very clear headed and I'm just like action oriented. I'm like, well, there's problems that we need to solve. Let's solve them. Now with the pandemic, that was a bit challenging because obviously I had no answers to any of the problems that needed solving. But within my own world, there were things that I was able to do that made me feel like I was doing something. And so super stressful event happens. My emotions almost go away. I get very, let's solve the problem. And it's funny because I have to check myself when this happens because I can come off as very, very cold to people when they're, so like an example is if, if Katrina, if something major happens in Katrina's life and she's freaking out a little bit and she comes to me to support her in that, there's, you know, when you're looking for support, there's one of two things that you're looking for. Sometimes both. You're looking for an answer to the problem, which is not always the case, but sometimes, or you're looking for, for sympathy or not, not sympathy, but like you're looking for an emotional understanding, like commiserate with me. Let me help me like process my emotions, help me feel this way. Like make me feel like I'm not alone. And Obviously, this isn't just with Katrina, this is with everyone, but I have to be super mindful in these moments to check myself and be like, okay, they don't always want me to just solve the problem. Sometimes I have to show emotion and I have to kind of force myself to, to sit there and like have an emotional reaction to what's happening. And I know that that's very odd. Because like you said, when most time when it's super stressful, people get emotions get heightened. It's just spiraling out people are like i don't know what to do i don't know what's going on they start thinking about the future what's going to happen what's going to do this what's going to do that 
anyways, it was just an observation of. Yeah, I mean, actually, as dancers, we're always um, we're always playing with that because, I mean, I think some other dancers can relate. Practices can be very stressful. You know, you're in the studio with one other person, and emotions definitely get heightened, and you're constantly put in this fight or flight situation. So you have to, you know, learn how to cope, how to stay productive, even though, you know, it's an intense situation. And you, know, you get you get those coping mechanisms that, you know, that's also a work in progress. It's like, how can I best deal with the situation at hand? Yeah. I, I'm actually, I'm glad you bring up coping mechanisms because I think we can expand this to a larger um, experience, which is we all have coping mechanisms, right? And what's going through my head right now is thinking about people that I work with. And their a common coping mechanism when people are stressed is to turn to food. And it's something that we that I battle with people frequently. We're, we're trying to work through alternative coping mechanisms. We're working on becoming aware of what our coping mechanisms are in the event that it is food, something that we don't actually want to be participating in all the time. And the common question that people get or that people ask me when we're becoming more aware of these things or identifying what our coping mechanisms are and how they aren't helpful for us is why do I do this when it's clearly not something that helps me, right? In the case of people who stress eat mm-hmm. and are subsequently trying to improve their health or improve their eating habits. And the interesting thing, and this is extended to all coping mechanisms, is whether or not in the present day they are actually useful for us or not, at some point in time, they were very useful to us. So you're saying this is kind of like an innate human nature. Not necessarily an innate human nature, because I don't want to expand it to every person copes with food. For context, I read a lot. I read a lot of variety of things because oftentimes reading things outside of the scope of coaching or fitness or whatever has brought the best insights for me to help people figure out how to change. So with that in mind, one of the best lessons I learned in in helping people and understanding people was a book about catching serial killers. Not to say that everyone I work with is serial killers, but I don't know if you're familiar with the show Criminal Minds. Uh, the TV show. TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The TV show. So the, the TV show was based on two gentlemen. I think there was also a separate Netflix series about the same two gentlemen that started the kind of behavioral analysis unit at, at, in the FBI, the psychological profiling, the figuring out kind of the mindset of criminals as they're committing these crimes. And so he wrote a book, which is the book that I'm, one of the books that I'm referring to, And the lesson I pulled from that is regardless, when you're looking at someone's behavior, regardless of what you think makes sense, they're performing the behavior because it does something for them, because it makes sense to them. And and it could be some weird, in the case of serial killers, some weird, sick, twisted story fantasy that's going on in their head of the meaning of these behaviors and whatever. But nevertheless, it makes sense to them. They, they're doing something because they think it's going to get them an outcome that they want, right? 
And that is true of, in my opinion, of all human behavior. When we can understand in the third party case, a person's reasons or our own reasons for doing something, the behavior makes sense. Even from the outside, it doesn't make any sense. So in the case of somebody using the stress eating as an example, somebody who stress eats when, they, when they're in that hyper anxious aroused state to calm themselves down, if they're trying to improve their habits, it doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing something that detracting from something else that you want, right? But the reality is at some point they were stressed and the food gave them that hit of pleasure, or maybe there was comfort food that made them feel nostalgic and make them feel like they were at home with their family and that things were better and things were calmer or whatever it is, right? So those combinations of that kind of emotional, um, that emotional hug that you get, I guess, from the chemical pleasure of the food made them feel better. Mm -hmm. They felt better. And so that then triggered a response in them that, okay, I felt better this time. Maybe next time I'm stressed, I'll feel better again. And they were stressed again. They turned to food, boom, they felt a little better. And so now they developed that. That's all the coping mechanism is, right? Is it's a self-soothing behavior that's become habitual because it makes us feel better, right? Now they've established that as their coping mechanism because it makes them feel better. And when that first happened, they weren't worried about their weight. Maybe they were a young child and that wasn't even a thought that they had. Maybe they had no sense of this food's going to, especially as you get older, as I'm sure you're starting to realize, is certain foods don't necessarily agree with you anymore. So they actually physically make you feel worse afterwards. Whereas a child that didn't happen. So whatever the case is, at one point in their life, that Behavior served a purpose, it made them feel better when they were stressed, it brought them comfort. Now, however many years later, that coping mechanism is ingrained in them, but it's no longer serving the same purpose. Because now while it, make them, it might make them feel better in the short term, it makes them feel worse in the long term. Mm -hmm. And now later in life, the long term is a, a more cognizant thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'm trying to, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Uh, it was fascinating though. I was, I was very into that. I was like, oh, so this explains why I do all these like things that are terrible for me. <laughs> so, you know, in the case of like anytime we're stressed, and this is true, you know, a lot of people during the pandemic when they were anxious and stressed turned to a lot of their coping mechanisms. I know a lot of people who really, hit hard with the stress eating and put on a lot of weight during the pandemic. We all know people like that. People started drinking a lot more. I think in Michigan, they set record alcohol sales during the shutdown period, the six wow. months, whatever it is, because people were just drinking more. And again, another coping mechanism that some people gravitate towards to feel a little bit less stress. And so all of these and so, it, you know, for me, I guess my, I mean, I'm sure I have my own coping mechanisms, but for me, when I'm in that stressful situation, our coping mechanisms are driven to make us emotionally feel better, right? We're feeling stressed, we're feeling anxious, whatever coping mechanism we have makes us feel better. For me, my coping mechanism, I guess, to feel better is to feel nothing. Mm. You know what I mean? So 
it's always made me really good in like emergency situations because I'm not freaking out. I'm not like super worried about whatever. I'm just like, this is what's happening. How do we stop it? Or how do we figure out the next thing? Or how do we, you know, whatever. I don't know why a random story that just came to my mind about this. I, in high school, I bagged groceries. I was bagging someone's groceries. There was this older gentleman coming through. And for whatever reason, his eyes just rolled into the back of his head. And he was, he was a bit older, like easily in his 70s, maybe his 80s. Like, you know, and his eyes just rolled in the back of his head and you could tell his knees like started to buckle. He didn't completely fall, but he was like in the process of it. And the woman that was in line behind him kind of caught him and was kind of propping him up. The cashier was freaking out and was like just losing it. One of our managers had like run over and you could tell he was freaking out. He was trying to figure out what was going on this whole time. They're like trying to make sure he doesn't fall over. And I'm just sitting there and I look and I see, you know, at any grocery store, there's one of those electric carts called Amigos. And I remember just looking at my boss and I'm like, grab that Amigo and drive it over here. (laughs) We'll sit him in it. Right. Cause we needed him to get in a seat, but there were no seats nearby and no one was going to carry him. I'm like, just bring that motorized seat over here. Let's sit him in it. And then we'll figure out what's going on. And he did that. He, he ran over, or maybe I think I ran over and did it. I asked him if I could. And, uh, you know, I was like 15 at the time, whatever. And I drive it over. We gently put him in the seat and then we're able to like move him. Right. So we like, I'm walking next to this thing as I'm pulling the trigger so that it moves forward and we kind of move him out of the way and we're talking to him and someone calls the paramedics and whatever. And I think it was just a moment of low blood sugar. Cause I think he ended up leaving on his own. Like anyways, but afterwards I remember, and this is why it sticks with me is my boss came over and he was like, that was really quick thinking with the Amigo. And I was like, it made total sense to me at the time. I don't understand why it was quick thinking. Now in hindsight, I attribute it to the fact that I wasn't feeling any emotion at the time. Like, not that I don't feel emotion. I don't want to come off like a sociopath. I do feel emotion on it. But all of that gets, you know, put aside when you're trying to deal with the situation. Yeah, it gets suppressed momentarily at the height of whatever's happening. Because you, you need that, you know, free mind space to, you know, act and make decisions. Right. Because when we're emotional, we don't think logically. Those two don't happen at the same time. And so most of the time when our emotions are aroused, we don't make good decisions. That's crazy. If I think about it, you know, it's like, that's clearly an evolutionary thing that, you know, we've kept from our ancestors and whatnot. Cause I don't know when, when you have some kind of predator coming at you, you don't have time to feel scared. Right. You just, you flip the switch and you run. Yeah. Or fight it. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's a weird. And if we think about that, it's a weird balance of the two because you're right when we with our ancestors heard that rustling in the bushes immediately they would feel a height of emotion so in that case they do they feel very scared they feel anxious they feel like i'm assuming of course they're they're like what was that 
right? They get quiet, start to listen. And in that moment, emotions are heightened, right? And there's something to be said for that too, because you know, that adrenaline surges through our body, we can take in more information, right? Our hearing gets a little more, more acute, our vision gets a little bit tunnel, so we can see what we're trying to see and nothing else. I get distracted by anything else. But you're right, the moment that we start running from a predator, emotion goes away. We're not necessarily feeling emotion anymore. Now we're just trying to get away. Yeah, I I'm watched uh, season six of the show called Alone. And this is where they sent people out to the wilderness to live by themselves for a hundred days. And I was particularly impressed with um, one of the contestants who, I mean, spoiler alert, he won the season. His name is Roland. And this guy, he just, he knew exactly what to do. Like he made decisions on the fly. Uh, I think it was, he, instead of like building himself a house out of wood, this guy built it out of stone, you know, and you just, you become so impressed that first of all, you're able to build a house out of stone when you have, I don't know, maybe like 200 calories coming in a day because they, there's no food out there. And then he was able to uh, kill an ox and survive off of that for, you know, several days. And you just think that at this point, you know, for somebody to be able to do something like that, they have to, be very good with being in that state of, you know, having to make decisions on the fly, maybe, you know, suppressing emotions, not feeling scared or feeling worried, but just being able to act. But of course, it's a very extreme situation that, you know, people put themselves into, I guess, because it's a hobby of theirs or they enjoy doing that. Um, we don't always have to deal that with that in our, you know, day-to-day -day life, but, you know, the way things go, we always end up in some situation where it's uh, becomes pretty relevant. Absolutely. And, and it's a combination of being able to be clear headed and make good choices and also have the richness of experience to know which choices are the good ones. Right. Like I wouldn't have probably thought to make a stone house versus a wooden house because I didn't have the outdoor experience of, well, you know, the wood's probably not going to hold up very long. Let's, uh, uh yeah i don't i don't think i would have thought about that either i would have uh yeah i would give myself maybe a week that i could last out in the woods by myself before uh, calling for help <laughs> but i do think most people can benefit from learning how to regulate their own emotions and what i mean by that is being able to check in with yourself and understand what emotion you're feeling understand what caused the emotion that you're feeling and understand or learn how to dial down or up the emotion so that your behavior is not out of your control anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that was a fantastically long tangent that I love that we did. I'm curious though, because I know the story about you and I want you to share this story. I want to pull back because now we, we started at childhood. We jumped ahead chronologically to the pandemic. I want to go backwards a few years. I want to go backwards to your college years and the challenges of juggling college in Boston and dance in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, let's pull back. So at, at this point, right, I'm probably 18, 19, like heading into my uh, freshman year of college. 
And I had just won the, the national championships, you know, in the, in youth Latin, I was uh, so full of myself, like huge ego. I remember that. Um, and on top of that, I got an opportunity to perform on Dancing with the Stars. So I was, uh, I had to fly out to LA a few times. So, you know, I, I felt like a big shot. Obviously I wasn't, you know, but a lot of things happened at that time. And one of the big things is my, my teacher left. He had to move back to Montreal. So I suddenly didn't have guidance. Um, my partner and I had split up as well because, you know, we were going to different universities and we weren't, we didn't want to dance with each other anymore. And on top of that, like I, I was going to college, like that was a big one for me. I think at some point I didn't even know if I wanted to go to college. I came home and told my parents like, uh, guys, I'm just going to dance for the rest of my life. I'm not doing school. And, uh, in, uh, in a Russian Jewish household, that does not go over well, right? <laughs> My dad, uh, he definitely uh, knocked some sense into me, so to say, you know, from their perspective. <laughs> he said, you go to school. But I think uh, we had like a mutual understanding that they would, you know, support my dancing in a way if I went through and did college. And they didn't really support me financially, but it was more like this, um, like I wanted their acceptance of what I'm doing. And for them to accept dancing as part of my life, I had to be able to do it while still um, fulfilling their values, which was to go to college. And I, I, I can't say I was too happy about it then, you know, but I've, you know, become very appreciative of it. And, I understand where they're coming from because it's like, you know, they put all their whole life at risk. You know, they took all these chances to come to America just so that Iran could go to like a decent university. And of course, you know, you know, they always want you to be a doctor. They want you to be a, a lawyer or something like that. So like accountant came pretty close, <laughs> I think. But that was actually my choice. I, I decided I wanted to do accounting. I found it interesting. Uh, anyway, I digress. I, I'm at this crossroads in my life where I'm not going to college. I don't have a partner. Like I don't have a teacher and I really want to dance. And what I started doing is I found, uh, people who were looking for a partner in New York. That's where all the best dancers were and all the best teachers. And I, started you know going out there and you know having tryouts and seeing like who is looking for a partner who could be a potential you know match and at the same time i needed a teacher so i decided to go to uh, my teacher's teacher who was vivica toft and this was also something new because i felt like i was getting the information firsthand and you know, she was uh like to this day, I think she's still one of the best teachers in the industry. She had a big influence on my dancing and made me see it completely different way than I did at the time. Like I can call her my, my dance mom. I think we all joke, all her students, we call her our dance mom. And 
I, I soon found a partner. I was working with this teacher, but all of my classes and school life was in Boston. So I think it took me maybe, I don't know, a year to figure out the system. And the system was this. You have to arrange your schedule so all your classes fall, you know, one after another. So you don't have to be on campus for too long. You have to have the right professors. So on the first day of classes, you come to your professor and you say, hey, I'm going to be gone for my you know, world championships here, black pool there, and I have my nationals on this day. And I'm going to be missing classes on those days. And then if they would have a problem, I would just drop their class outright. But to be honest, when you come in, you know, and you have your like schedule like printed out that you can like just hand to them, um, they they seem they become much more open to it. They feel like okay, this is really important to this kid. Like I will work with you. And most of the time, there wasn't an issue. And once I had that set up, and I had this like you know the schedule that worked for me, um, the hardest part was just doing it. So that would mean. Thursday, right after classes, I catch a bus. Then I'd be on this bus during rush hour to New York. That trip could take, it should take four hours, but there were like days it would take like six or seven hours. So I'd be on this bus trying to, I don't know, like just keep myself from going insane. I would be like, I would try to study, but you know, you cannot really read a textbook on a bus because everything's moving. You know, I try to listen to music. Uh, watch dance videos, like anything to like, get the time going by. And then I'd show up in New York and right away go to practice. So even after this bus ride, I really felt like I needed to get into the studio. And then it'd be in New York, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday was a tricky one because, you know, I could, you know, stay Sunday night, have to come back Monday morning, or I could go back Sunday night and sleep in my own bed. So that was always a tricky one. But while I was in New York, you know, I would take my, I would practice with my partner. I would do dance lessons. And then Monday morning, it was back to my 8 a.m. class. So it was a very intense schedule that I had to hold down for four years. Wild schedule to hold on to for four years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and to this day, I'm not sure how I got through it. There was like a lot of nights where I just didn't sleep. Um, the whole time, I think I was also worried because I felt like it was taking away from my dancing. I was like, even though I was dancing three days a week, you know, there's only so much I can do. And definitely there are other people who are practicing more than me and taking more lessons. And they were like, they were living in New York while I was living in Boston. You know, so for them, it was easier. Um, so I had this feeling that I always had to push myself in order to, you know, first of all, like if I wanted to be the best, I had to push harder than them or, you know, at the very least keep up. Was there ever during that four year of that, that very intense schedule, was there ever a time where maybe the schedule made you doubt whether you wanted to keep dancing or not because of the demands of it? I don't think that I ever questioned whether I wanted to keep dancing or not. Like, I, I really love what I do. And I, I don't think that I would ever consider not doing, not dancing. 
and I, I realized that actually early on because there was approximately one week when I was like 14 or 13 or something that I decided to quit. And I, I just couldn't. I was like, no, I have to get back into this. And I, I think <laughs> since that one attempt, I've never quit on dancing or doubted it. What, what made you try to quit at 14? I don't know. I was just, I might've been fed up with it. Might've been fed up with my partner. You know, I remember just coming home and announcing like, I'm done with dancing. And I think like one or two days came by and I was just like, like, didn't know what to do with myself. Like, no, like I got to get back in the studio. I got to, you know, take a dance class. <laughs> you know, I, I love hearing that, that story of your schedule during college. Cause I think, there's something so powerful about a what we're able to get away with when we're younger and we have the exuberance to do that, but also the perspective that I think it gives for where you are now, right? Like if you think of your schedule now and the demands that you have and the things you're juggling versus what you went through then, I have to imagine it gives you a little bit better perspective of like, okay, it may be tough, but I know I can do it because I did that for four years. Yeah. I, th I think while you're in it, you know, you always feel like there's, um, you know, like easier times ahead. Like you think, oh, I'm going to graduate from school and like suddenly I won't have this burden and I'll just be able to focus on my dancing. And I mean, that's all... Uh, ignorance right because when you do graduate from school like here's your job now go and do it and what you know that process taught me was actually like you said like I can handle this if I am structured enough if I'm organized and I, I have a plan then I can still dance I can still like be successful and it's, it was very much a precursor to what my life became now. You know, you just substitute the, you know, the job for the time in the university and I was still doing accounting, but like definitely on a bigger scale than what they were teaching us in school. I have to say though, I think majoring in, I majored in accounting and finance and maybe 5% of what I learned like uh, material wise in college is relevant to what I'm doing now because taxes are its own complete thing, right? You really learn on the job from doing and um, from doing like a lot of research because you need to know certain things. But what I really took from college was um, just knowing how to put myself under pressure, how to manage my time and like stay organized and have to be able to balance you know, working and dancing at the same time. Yeah. That's one thing that I feel grateful for when I was in school, getting my degree in psychology is a lot of what I learned getting my psych degree. I still apply today and it's very, very helpful, but I know in a lot of cases, it's more like that, especially in an ever evolving field, taxes laws are always changing. It's always, you know, whatever is, there's a lot of that. You don't really use too much of what you learned in school. It's more, as you said, learning on the job, learning as things change, having to pivot. And uh, so that's something I feel very fortunate for is I still use a lot of what I learned. That's good. But let me ask you this, like, 
what do you do with a psychology degree? Because I know a lot of people that, you know, they study psychology, but then they go and do something completely different. So that's a really good question. It, so like, what can you do with a psychology degree? Really the most obvious path is to go into some sort of counseling, right? To go into therapy, become a psychologist, a psychiatrist, whatever it is, or academics. That's like, you do research, you become a professor. Those are the two like established tracks. So the short answer to your question is not much. There's not much to do with a psych degree. However, however, because I can't just leave it at that. However, the information you learn getting a psych degree can make you better at anything that you do. So it can't be the sole source of information that's going to create a career track for you, but it will enhance your ability to excel in whatever else you decide to do, which I think is where the real benefit of psych information and education lies. Yeah. Like, uh, like running 18 fit. Here we are. Welcome. <laughs> I'm curious. So throughout, we'll start from college onwards throughout your college years with that demanding schedule. I feel like I already know the answer to the question I'm about to ask, but then after college up until now, obviously you were very involved in dance practices and competitions was there ever a point in time when you were specifically working on your own fitness? You know, I struggled with that a lot. I think I always wanted to be more fit, you know, but I never really got around to um, actively making that, you know, priority. And I would go to the gym, you know, I would get myself like a few training sessions at the, the local like you know, crunch or plan of fitness, whatever. Um, but I, I would never stick with it because I remember, you know, not seeing results. I was all about, you know, getting results quick. And it was like in dancing, you take a lesson, you change something, you improve. With uh, working out, I never felt that because I don't think I ever got around to, uh, doing it long enough to see that improvement. Okay. So you, it sounds like you dabbled a little bit, but as you said, you weren't seeing the fast results. And so it was, it, it kind of dwindled. In your- yeah. I kind of go in and out of uh, going to the gym, but I never, I never really stuck with it. Like I did when uh, we started working together. Did you ever see the value when you were younger? Did you ever see the value of, improving your fitness as it translated to your dance performance? Um, no, I can't say I did. I, I always thought, you know, being fit or like for dancing, I would get it through, you know, just dancing more. Like, you know, I could get my cardio up from uh, doing rounds. You know, we do, we do rounds a lot. Um, and then I thought it was, you know, just purely for aesthetic. Like if I wanted to look good, that's why I would go to the gym. Fair enough. Would you say that, and that's a very common belief with all of the dancers that I know, is that belief that if we want to improve our dancing, we dance more. In a nutshell, right? Which isn't wrong by any stretch of the imagination. Do you think that that view has changed slightly in our time together in terms of the value that, 
separately building these different aspects of your body can in fact translate to better dancing? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a hundred percent that I think um, just from dancing, you don't get the kind of development I think that is required at, at least like in, in this day to be a very successful dancer. Um, I've noticed that at all the top dancers, they do cross training. And what that means is outside of just dancing, you know, they have other things that they're doing to improve their physique and their endurance. Like, uh, you know, you can run treadmill, you can go to the gym. Some people do Pilates, gyrotonics, some people run. Um, There's a lot of, you know, different things that you want to be doing in order to be like a well-rounded athlete. Yeah. And I think that's the crucial thing is really, as a dancer, seeing yourself as an athlete, because that's the reality, right? And if you look at any other sport, any other athletic endeavor, football players, yes, they practice a lot to be better at their sport, but they're also in the weight room, making sure that they're faster and they're stronger. Basketball players, same thing. They want to make sure they have more explosiveness, that they have more stamina. Like they're doing all of these things, cross-training outside of the main activity that they're competing in to improve their ability to compete better, right? Tell us, walk us through us meeting each other because we met towards the beginning of the pandemic, I want to say, like that summer. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, I just moved to Florida, you know, and uh, at that point I've become determined, you know, to become more fit. Like I really wanted to, you know, do something positive with this time I had while, you know, things were still on lockdown. And I, I hopped up uh, Ellie's profile on Facebook. And I like, I haven't seen the guy in like some years, you know, and then all of a sudden I see him and, you know, he had a major transformation. You know, this guy was suddenly like super fit. I was extremely impressed. And right away I messaged him. I'm like, man, how did you do it? You know, and uh, he told me about you and he said that you're a great trainer. And like, I immediately decided to give it a try. I thought, you know, this could be a game changer for me. And so then we connected you, like you said, you had just moved from New York down to Florida to escape the chaos of being cooped up in in such a small place uh, when everything was still shut down. And, And so then we connected and we started a program together and obviously it was an online coaching program you all the way down there in florida and me all the way up here in michigan literally opposite ends of the country was there anything that surprised you in participating in an online fitness program i guess i mean at the time, there wasn't really another option, right? The gyms were still closed. And, you know, the, the online videos that I was doing before, you know, we started working together, they were just not cutting it. <laughs> um, but then what really surprised me was this focus on nutrition. And I think immediately I started learning things about food that I never knew before. And that was a huge part of what of the work that we did together because in addition to just the workouts the nutrition and learning about how to eat what to eat 
that was a big impact in, you know, changing my approach. Absolutely. Especially in your situation as an athlete, where it's not just run of the mill, trying to lose weight, trying to look a little better, trying to cut out, you know, a little bit of fast food out of your diet or whatever the case is. It's very more unique in that you have to make sure you're having enough energy for the various activities that you're doing that you're not only are you eating the right nutrients to have that energy, but you're eating things that agree with you and sit well with you because you can't eat a meal, feel like crap and go out and compete and perform your best and being able to juggle all those things within the demanding schedule that you had, even then, maybe less than definitely now of making sure that you're still making it a priority and you're figuring out how to fit all of those good choices into your life right yeah i think when you when you go through the the program or so to say you know you start to look at things very very differently and um i don't look at food the same at all and i don't think i ever will again because when i used to you know look at something and think oh this could be yummy now i flip it over and I'm looking at the back to see what it's made out of, you know, and, you know, what are the nutritional facts there and why would I eat it? What would be the purpose of it? Um, and, you know, it's like once you, once you get it down, you can balance it out. And what I really liked was that we were doing this flexible dieting. So uh, it was very different from other diets that I heard about or, you know, might've tried myself in that, well, you can eat whatever you want, you know, but you have to have the right, like, proportions. Like, you have to know, you know, what you're eating and then make sure that you're still getting enough of the other things that you also need. Um, and, you know, it just, it, it changed everything. It changed my eating habits, my shopping habits, and how much I cook at home. All this stuff became very prevalent, especially during the pandemic when I suddenly had like more free time and I was stuck at home and now I could focus on that. It, uh, we pulled you out of the matrix, so to speak, which is the term I like to use. But it's funny because you can never go back. And I tell people this when they're interested in starting. I'm like, we know we're good. if you want to fix learn more about nutrition and you want to fix your eating and you want to improve it, we can. But just know you can't go back from that. <laughs> yeah that's true you have the knowledge now that doesn't allow you to make those choices without understanding the consequences right you're gonna really value that piece of cheesecake you're having now because this is uh such a treat not only that but i would wager it's gonna you're gonna make sure that you actually are eating a good piece of cheesecake Right. That's true. Like now, now it has to fit the standards. If you're gonna have a piece of cheesecake, you better be good. Like if you're gonna go through the struggle of fitting it into your nutrition for the day, or if you're gonna make the conscious choice to go over your goals nutritionally for the day for that cheesecake, you're gonna damn well make sure it's a good cheesecake. And you're gonna enjoy it a lot more too. And you're gonna enjoy it a lot more. Um and, and you know, the flexible dieting aspect is important, I think, for people to hear because most when most people think of diets they think okay rigidity there's off-limits foods there's bad foods there's good foods there's only a certain amount of things that i can eat and as you said that's not really the case when you understand the underlying principles of nutrition is nothing becomes off-limits inherently 
But as we've kind of already talked about, and, and as we'll talk about in a second, some things might agree with you more. Some things might make it easier to stick to your goals for the day. So there are certainly through your experiences of juggling that you'll start to sway towards certain food choices because they're easier because they taste better because they make you feel better because they make your life easier in terms of hitting the nutrition goals. And those all tend to be healthier choices, which is of course amazing, but it doesn't restrict you from occasionally having your piece of cheesecake and either a working it into your nutrition so that no harm, no foul, or you make the conscious choice to go over, but at least, you know, you're making that choice and you're accepting the trade-offs that come with that. Right. Yes. And there was something else to say about another it. thing, you know, that I really liked uh, that we did. I think there was a period of time when I had a lot of competitions back to back, and um, we started looking for that optimal meal to eat before I dance. And we we're playing with like different types of foods, and also the timing of it, like how long before I'm going to be on the floor should I consume this food? And I think. There was a lot of things that we tried and a lot of attempts. And the, the one that stuck with me, which is like now my go-to meal is I like to have oatmeal before I dance. And because oatmeal is like a little bit lighter than like a full meal, like I usually eat it, at, I think maybe like two or three hours before I go on the floor. Cause that's when it makes me feel the best. So yeah. I thought that was a really cool part of it too. That, we kind of went on this, like, uh, you know, we went even deeper than just to like pick good foods, but like also to time them and, you know, have it for a specific purpose. Absolutely. And that's the unique nature of you as a, as a competitive dancer and as an athlete is those, for most people, those questions aren't relevant. When we're eating certain things, the timing of it before activity is really not all that important for most people. They really don't have to worry about it. But for someone like yourself, who is a high level competitive athlete, that stuff does because those details become a little bit more important. Right. And it also ties into the flexible dieting uh, idea too, which is there being no off limits foods. And this is what I love about you being an athlete because it becomes more obvious. If you eat something that's not the best, you'll know it, you will feel it and you'll come back and you will tell me I did not feel great after eating this. And then I don't have to sit there and be like, okay, it's probably because that's not, you know, the healthiest or the lightest sitting or the best choice for you. I don't have to try to convince you of that. You'll be able to be like, I'm not going to do that again because I felt terrible. <laughs> right. And in that process, of course, we were able, as you just described, to figure out what is the best for you in that situation, which is oatmeal. And that's not true for all the dancers that I work with. For some dancers, it's rice and chicken. That's the thing that's best for them. For others, it's something else entirely right? It's yogurt and fruit or whatever. So there are, and I think that's the cool thing about nutrition. And this is the hard thing about diets that box people in to the same methods and the same foods and the same whatever is when it comes to nutrition. And I do believe this when it comes to nutrition, it's really N equals one, right? The sample size is always one and it's you, the individual. There are certain trends. Obviously, we all need a good amount of protein. We want to make sure we're getting enough carbohydrates to supply the energy we need for demanding activities like dance. There's all of those underlying principles that we learn when we're going through the program. But then comes the sample size of one, which is now we have to tweak it for what is best for you. 
right? And it kind of empowers you a little bit to figure out what those are for yourself. Oatmeal before a competition, case in point, right? It's a little bit like your, your own science project. It's, it's exactly what it is, right? You're, yeah, you're constantly figuring it out. Nutrition, optimizing and improving nutrition is ultimately trial and error. And anyone who says differently is lying. It's trial <laughs> and error. It's figuring it out, what works, what doesn't, and then doing a little bit better next time, right? And in the process, of course, empowering you so that you have full control in a variety of circumstances, whether you're traveling for a competition, whether you're at home, whether it's peak tax season and you're working 70 hours a week, it empowers you to be able to understand how to tweak your choices so that you can still make sure that you're staying on top of things, right? Yeah. Um, are there any other big changes you may have noticed through your time in the program other than just the nutritional aspect? Well, I, I think besides the nutrition, um, I understood a lot more about body composition and kind of explained to me also why when I was you know, younger and dabbling and going to the gym, why it wasn't really working out for me. And um, it's kind of like this combination of nutrition and exercise that you're really able to change how your body looks and how your body functions too, because you know, what I've learned is like you build more muscle, it's going to be much easier for you to burn through those calories moving on, you know? And I don't know, just having that understanding really made it easier for me to like make it part of my life or part of my day to day, um, you know, in addition to my practice and my work and my competitions, all this stuff, I can also control you know, my fitness and nutrition and make that part of the schedule. I love it. Is there that understanding of, of the fitness and the nutrition that you've developed? Do you feel like it's given you a bit of a competitive advantage in the dancing world? A hundred percent. And see, it's not even so much about having the advantage. It's about doing what is needed what is required nowadays to be a high-performing athlete um if you tell me it's just about the dancing you know i would say it's a lie i think you what we do is extremely subjective you know it's there's no scorecard yeah it's you're constantly being compared to others so not only does it matter how you look but it matters like are you more athletic? Are you capable of doing more? And how much time and you know thought have you really put into your craft? And the the fitness and the nutrition is a, a big part of that because it really enhances the things that we do as dancers. Yeah. So what it sounds like is it's not a competitive advantage. It's now become almost a necessity to perform at the level that the best dancers perform at. Yeah. And that's what I believe. And that's what I, what I've noticed from, you know, the current industry. So now, you know, I love everything we've been talking about, but now to kind of wrap things up, I want to give you the opportunity to ask me any question that you want to ask. All right, Alex, my question for you is how did you come up with the slogan? Any questions, comments, concerns, 
happenings, things of interest. I must have heard that a hundred times. And I'm very curious where you found that. I am just so thrilled that you got it right when you said it. Oh, it has to be right. <laughs> it has to be right. Most people can't get it right, even as many times as they've heard me say it in one go. So how did I come up with the catchphrase, questions, comments, concerns, happenings, or things of interest? So anyone who is a client, has been a client, has been in any of my classes previously, early 18 days, understands this phrase because I say it all the time, almost in every interaction that I have with you guys. It started completely by accident. So I was in early 18 days. So this was 2014, 2015. Had just started 18. The, the backbone of my coaching was this four-week-long group training session that I ran in a gym. We'd have anywhere from six to 13 people in it. We'd meet four times a week for a group workout together. And it was uh, a program I had designed at the commercial gym I was working at prior to starting A-Team. And I kind of brought it with me and continued to build it. And, and, and it was A-Team Fitness at the time. And at the end of these, there were hour-long workouts. At the end of these workouts, there would be a, a short lesson that I would share with people. It could be something nutritionally. It could be something related to exercise. We might talk about stretching. We might talk about something mindset related, but it was one singular topic that I would spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about with people. And I've had, I would have handouts that I would give people to read up on it or whatever it was. And, you know, because most of the, I only saw these people in class, it was my opportunity to have the conversations that I have now online outside of the workouts, outside of those workouts as well. And I don't remember what, ins what inspired it one day, but I just remember I had finished a lesson. I think I was super amped up on caffeine. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of your demanding schedule when you were in college, I had a similar experience when I first started a team, when I was doing only in-person sessions where, I mean, I would be training some, sometimes I'd be training people until 10 or 11 at night, or I wouldn't get home till 10 or 11 at night. And then I'd be up by four 30 because my first appointment would be at five 30 in the morning. And so I was pounding caffeine. I mean, like huge hit first thing in the morning. And then I actually got to a point where I was taking caffeine pills midday to like oh keep me going that stopped when i started having heart palpitations from it that's when i was like all right we're gonna we're gonna go off the caffeine a little bit um so i this was an evening class maybe six or seven p.m this is probably 8 p.m i'm hyped up on just untold amounts of caffeine so i'm super hyper and i'm super like and i'm getting into it and if you know me as you do rod you know that I enjoy a good bit of drama oh, yeah. and, and, and showmanship when I'm talking because it's just fun and I think it, it makes people more engaging. So I'm sure I was doing a bit of that as I'm going through this lesson and I'm talking and, and I'm doing this. And, and so naturally at the end, I would ask if anyone had any questions and I don't know what it was completely by accident. I just kept going and I just any questions, comments, concerns. At that moment, I probably stopped for a second. Happenings, things of interest. Happenings is an interesting one. And I, and I think you really ask somebody if they have any happenings. But that's what, I, that's what I mean. I think I was so hyped up on caffeine and I think there was a pause. 
because I think I meant to stop at questions, comments, concerns, and I stopped. And I probably looked around the group to see anyone's faces. And in the process, I just blurted out happenings. Uh, I, I love it. I love it because it's all encompassing. It's like anything that's going on in your life, now is the time to share. <laughs> and so ever since that moment, I just started using it at the end of each of those talks. And then I kept it and I continued it. And now, uh, it, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast before, but now I obviously still use it. And I use it purposefully now at the end of each call as kind of, um, if you've ever been to a stand-up comedy show, like have you ever been to a comedy showcase? Yeah. So when it's time for them to wrap up their session, there's a little spotlight that's red, at least here in town, we have a comedy show that has a red spotlight, not spotlight, but a red light that only the performer can really see. And it goes on when they have five minutes left. So it's like their cue of like, okay, I need to start wrapping up whatever I'm doing because it's my time to get off. So I use that phrase during my calls now to as that red light that signals whoever I'm talking to that like we're getting towards the end of this thing. Let's start wrapping it up, you know? And so it's just a fun, I don't know, it's a fun catchphrase. It's fun to say too. Yeah, and it never feels like you're, it's, it's wrapping up, you know? You always feel like, okay. Alex just wants to talk about some more stuff. Let's go. <laughs> well, that, my friends, is how it's intended to feel. That's great. That's great. I mean, I, you know, we, we don't work together anymore, but definitely the time that we did have together, it was very changing for me and um, really made a positive impact on who I am now, what I'm striving for. And, um, Somehow I feel like this, you know, what we've done together, you know, it'll always be there and it'll always be helping me move forward. Yeah. Glad to hear that, my friend. Thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, Alex, it was, it was my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. If you feel inspired by this story, please share it with a friend. If you'd like to book a free discovery call to talk with an A-team coach, head to the episode description or visit us at ateamfit.com. That's A-T-E-A-M-F-I-T.com. We'll see you again soon.